Um, thanks, sir. That's awesome. Um, what's going on here? All right. Um, Doug, I do want to say thank you for letting me come preach. Uh, I think your son is right. It is a big deal for uh, someone else to come preach uh, in your pulpit. And uh, I'm thankful that you had me here. I thank you for mentioning Hong Kong because uh, it reminded me that I've got a pack this week. And I was thinking about what to pack, and I was remembering that everything in Hong Kong... Uh, it's written is in Chinese pretty much, and my washer and dryer is actually in Japanese. I don't speak either, and um, so I realized that I've got to pack 60 pairs of underwear because nobody's going to be there to wash it for me. I don't have a mom or a girlfriend or anything, just me and Japanese. So um, while Windows XP tries to find my sermon, let's just uh, pray, and then um, and we'll just dig into God's Word and see what He has to say for you, uh, for me this morning. Um, it's always kind of a hard deal sometimes, not hard, but um, a faithful deal to speak to a, to a group of people that you don't know. I, mean, I know about you, I've heard about you, or heard about the great things God is doing. Uh, I don't have to worry about whether or not God's Word is going to speak to you or not, because it's God's Word, and it's His voice. And, uh, and what He says, what's in His Word, does not return to Him void. So and let's just pray that this morning that God will speak uh, to you through His Word, and uh, then we'll begin. The Heavenly Father, we do thank You today that You... Uh, God, that you love us, um, God, that you, uh, you take care of us. And Father, may we hear uh, your message this morning um, about truth and about what, uh, what we're really supposed to follow, uh, about what we're supposed to be about, uh, about how we're supposed to go along with this thing called Christianity. And uh, Father, I pray that you speak through your word about Christ this morning, about the cross. Uh, we thank you, Father, and we love you, and uh, we pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. If you go ahead and take your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, kind of one of those God things happened the last few weeks. I'm uh, registering for, uh, for seminary. Actually, I start seminary August 24th at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth. And uh, I just decided, or the Lord put it in my heart to study through 1 Corinthians this summer and just look through it. Well, I got to, to school the other day, and they registered for me a class on 1 Corinthians next semester. So I thought, well, man, I'm going to be teaching the class by the, you know, by the time it comes, but probably not, but we'll see what happens. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 through 12, we'll begin. And basically, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting verse 10, all the way through the end um, of, of the chapter, and we'll look at the whole thing this morning. And uh, so we're going to be here until about 3 o'clock, um, but I'm excited about that. Let's turn, let's turn there, and let's just begin reading and see uh, what God has for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning of verse 10, Paul Right to the church in Corinth says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me. Uh, here's, a, here's a nice deal here. Some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Now, that sounds like a wonderfully functioning church. Somebody told me that you brothers were sinning. All right. Here we go. What I mean is this. One of you says, 
I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. And still another, which is the word for Peter. Still another says, I follow in Christ. And I was reading this the other day. And uh, for my graduation present from the Chadwells, I actually got a, a New Testament commentary for a few books. And First Corinthians was one. And it was really helpful because I was reading this and I'm thinking, okay, who is um, Apollos and Cephas? All right, what's going on here? And it just, he, James Barclay just explained it verbatim who these guys are. And I want to talk about that and discuss that today. Let's look at, first of all, at Apollos. Um, Apollos is, uh, he's Jewish, he's from Alexandria, and he is uh, a very good speaker. He's a very good preacher. He's that kind of guy where he can tell you to go jump off a cliff, and you're like, sounds good to me, just because, you know, what he says is attractive. He's a good speaker. But the deal is, uh, the deal is with him, he is all about um, speaking well. He, he is not necessarily about Christ. He is almost nearly about him himself. And so that's not good. Cephas is also um, the Jewish name for Peter. Um, this was a group of people who wanted to teach that you must follow the Jewish law. And so they're saying, look, we're Christians, um, but here's the deal. We also have to do everything right. I don't know if you guys have studied the Jewish law or not, but it's no fun. It's no good. And so um, following Cephas means we're going to follow Christ. But we're also going to try to be perfect, absolutely perfect people by doing everything the law says. Also not good. Now, the thing is, um, at the very end of this passage, in verse 12, it says that there's another group of people who say, people who say I follow Christ. Well, in the Greek, all of those, those letters, um, I follow Christ, run together. And they're not in quotations like it is in NIV. And so we, we don't really know if Paul is saying, you guys follow all those people, but I, Paul, I follow Christ. Or if there's another group of people, which is the, the common thought, there's another group of people who are out there saying, we don't do any of that stuff. We don't follow Cephas or Apollos or, you know, or the Catholic Church or whatever. We're just following Jesus. OK, that's a pretty common thought that there's this group of people saying we deny all that. We're just Christians. OK, we're non-denominational, if you will. And uh, I thought about this and I read that and I thought, is it just in Corinth that this is happening? I mean, is there a place in, in the rest of history or, or in our world today where this is happening? And I can make this applicable, applicable to me. Hold your face in 1 Corinthians and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. You can always just hold your place in 1 Corinthians this morning, but we're going to flip around some. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Is that, is that right? Somebody took it out of my Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And I read this and I thought it's got to be true. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything which one of you can say, look, if this is something new, it was already here long ago. It was here before our time. Now, I read that and I thought about this passage and I thought that's so true because I can, I can look in, in our culture today and say, you know what, there's denominations all over the place. I mean, we're following different groups of people. There's different groups of Christians all over the place. And I look at this and I'm like, you know what, it, it makes sense. Because here Solomon says, you know, we look around and there's really nothing new. You can never say, well, we've got this horrible problem today of denominations, right? And uh, we don't know which denomination to follow. We don't know which denomination to be, which one's really going to heaven, which one's going to be in hell for eternity. We don't know. We've got to figure out the right one. Well, we're not the first people to have that problem. Um, in fact, Paul is writing about that in Corinth right here. Let's look in history just a little bit. And I want to show you, uh, starting in the 1500s until today, how our world, and I guess the Christian Culture, you could say, has had this problem um, just like Corinth did and just like we do today. 
uh, starting in the 1500s, there's a guy named Martin Luther. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Martin Luther. Oh, good. All right, good. Um, in 1517, he goes up to, uh, to the Catholic Church there and tacks on the 95 Thesis to the front door and just begins the revolution uh, that is one of the biggest turning points in Christianity as a whole since the first century church in Corinth. He tacks it on there and Luther begins to gather um, a pretty large gathering so much that he developed, he was developed, uh, they gave him a name, they called him Our Martin. All right. They called him our Martin. So he's not just not just a pastor. They're claiming ownership to Martin Luther. Um, let's keep going. After him, there's a guy named Thomas Munzer. He was originally a comrade in arms with Luther, um, but then he changed his views and got away from that. So now in this time, there are followers of Luther. There's followers of Munzer. Then there's a guy named Zwingli. He came along and said, you know what, Luther, everything you're saying is really good, except I do believe we should be able to um, baptize infants. All right. A whole nother deal, a whole nother church. Then John Calvin comes in, and John Calvin does a, a whole thing that no one has even done yet. John Calvin wrote something called the Institutes. And basically, his Institutes were um, a big, huge, multi-volume writing of this is how we should have church. All right? And not just this is what I think about the Bible, but this is how we are going to have church. And so in the 1500s, we've got people who are following Luther. We've got people who are following Zwingli and Munzer and now John Calvin. I I read this about John Calvin that um, John Knox said um, John John Calvin was in Geneva. And uh, Knox said Geneva is the most perfect school of Christ that ever was in this earth since the days of the apostles. In other places, I confess Christ to be truly preached, but manners and religion to be never never to be so sincerely reformed. I have not seen. And so what John Knox says is, look, it's exactly what's happening in Corinth, and I believe it's exactly what's happening a lot today. He's saying this, Luther's cool, and, and Muntz is good, and, and these other guys are good, but John Calvin, he has the most perfect school of Christ. All the other churches, they're good, but John Calvin's church is better than the rest of the churches. Okay, and see, this is the same exact thing that's happening in Corinth that Paul is speaking against. Some of you guys say I'm following Apollo. Some of you guys are saying I'm doing this. All of these who claim to be Christians and Paul is saying, "Mm, let's all be united. Let's keep going, though. The 1700s Christianity comes to uh, America. Um, And we have something that began about 1725, 1726 called the Great Awakenings. Uh, Theodore Freling Heisen um, was the first person to begin preaching. Um, he started doing house churches and home churches and preaching under trees. And people started following this guy around and having church with him. After him, there's a guy, one of my favorites, Jonathan Edwards. Um, he, uh, he is a pretty powerful man uh, I mean, with the ability of God as far as revivals go. He went and, and people came to listen to him everywhere he went. Another guy in the 1700s, about 1745, a guy named George Whitfield, who's one of my favorite preachers to read from this era. Um, he once preached to 73 days and traveled 800 miles and preached 130 sermons in 73 days. Brother is busy, right? He preaches... Jonathan Edwards preaches, Theodore Frelinghuysen preaches, and they all are preaching about Jesus Christ dying on the cross for their sins. But these three guys also have three completely different views about how the world's going to end. They have three completely different views about what the whole purpose of the church and, and baptism are. 
And so now we have people not only saying, I'm a Christian, people have to decide, are we going to follow Frailing Heisen? Are we going to follow Jonathan Edwards? Or are we going to be a Christian and follow George Whitfield? Do you see where I'm going? The same problem as Corinth, same problem as the 1500s is now in the 1700s. And there is an issue that is alive and today, I believe we're even fighting against it today, that came out of this era in the century of the 1700s, and it's called a denomination. Um, I want to read this book. It's actually my textbook from, uh, from school. Never thought I would use this again. I just graduated in May. Um, I thought about burning it, but I just, just kept it for some reason. So I want to read this to you, though. Um, the denominations that came out of, the denominations that we have today, it came out of the era of the 1700s, out of these great awakenings, when churches begin to form, I guess. All right. And this is cool, I thought, to read. Denominationalism, as, as these men used the term in the mid-1700s, was the opposite of sectarianism or, or separatism. A sect regards itself alone as the true church. By definition, a sect is exclusive. Denomination, on the other hand, was, adop- was adopted as a neutral and inclusive term. It implied that the group referred to is but one member called or denominated by a particular name of a larger group, the church, to which other denominations belong. And so we have denominations that were brought around the 1700s that were supposed to be um, inclusive and not seclusive, right? And so we have now the church of Frailing Heisen and Jonathan Edwards, the Presbyterian and the Baptist and all these guys who are basically saying, we've got some different views, but we're about Christ. We're about Jesus. Now, I think we have come a little farther from that in our view of denominations in our church today. Amen? Okay, say amen. You've got to say ouch, right? That's what Vody Bauckham says, all right? We do. I mean, there's, there's Baptists and there's Presbyterians and there are all of these things. And I'm not even sure what we are here, bro. It's all right, right? And so I, I, I see this and, I, and what Paul is saying is, look, it doesn't matter what you are. It doesn't matter because we are not called to follow people we're called to follow christ we're called to follow christ we are not here this morning to follow doug washburn amen all right doug's the first one to say amen all right he's kind of funny looking that's why we're not here to follow me we're not here to follow a band we are here to follow christ we're here to follow christ let's continue in first corinthians chapter one in verse 13 Let's read that. And Paul says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. Sounds like a toaster's poodle. So no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas, but beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with the words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, this is an important thing what Paul says here about baptism, because in Corinth, and especially in the 1500s, we saw that baptism is what separated churches. But Paul says, I did not come to baptize you. That's not why I came. I did not come to get you wet. All right. There's a bath hole over here. You do need to clean yourself up. That's not why I'm here. I'm here to preach and talk to you about Christ that died for you. 
That's why I'm here. I'm not even here to baptize. A couple of things I want to mention. Let's, let's keep your finger in First Corinthians. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. This is the account of Matthew of Jesus' baptism. Let's just see kind of what happened in Jesus' baptism and kind of what didn't happen. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you do not come to me. And you do not come to me. And do you come to me? Excuse me. Verse 15. Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented, and as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was open. doesn't happen but like three or four times in the New Testament. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son with whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now what it doesn't say here, I thought about this. What it doesn't say here is Jesus came up, he was baptized, the, the doors, the floors, whatever of heaven opened. The Spirit of God came down as a dove, descended on his shoulder. Jesus filled out a membership to First Baptist Golgotha, got signed up for three committees, got nominated for the committee on committees, but probably wasn't going to get it because he was new and nobody knew him. I didn't say that. It just says he was baptized into what? The Spirit. Now, we can go on all day about did Jesus have the Spirit before? Well, yeah, he did because he's Jesus and he's God. But here, here's the deal. His ministry is beginning here and the Holy Spirit comes on him when he's baptized. And this is what Paul wants our focus to be about is baptism. Is that it's about the Spirit. It's about God. It's about Jesus dying for us. It has nothing to do with what man on earth we follow. We follow. And we do it today even still. I tell you what, in school, I, I love this kind of a side note. In school, I love to debate theology, you know, about what's going to in the world going to be like, you know. Um, Jesus is God and man. How can that be possible? You know, you get into debates like this and um, there's there's two really distinct views of the end of the world um, that people follow, Arminianism and Calvinism. And the funny thing is that every time you get into that debate, no one at school ever had their own mind made up. They either took the Arminius side or the Calvinistic side, which is other men's viewpoints. All right. I'm not saying Calvin wasn't right or, or Arminius wasn't right. But I'm saying what we've done is we find other people's views, other people's ideas, the work that they've done, the study that they've done, the life that they lived. And we say we'll follow him as he follows Christ rather than me just following Christ. Just following Christ. And Paul says, I, I didn't come to baptize. I didn't come to baptize you. He couldn't even remember who he baptized. Look, look at the passage back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says, I'm thankful that I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so none of you would say that you were baptized into my name. So basically, Paul is saying, I'm even glad that I didn't baptize some of you because you probably would have abused it and ruined it and used it for something else. And then he says, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. I don't even remember. All right. It could have been a hundred of you. It could have been three. I don't know. I don't remember because it's not why I was even there in the first place. And we hold on to this. I mean, we've got to know what what little group of Christianity are we in? And Paul says those are lines that in the view of God are invisible, that do not exist. 
that do not exist in the true church. Let's continue to read in 1 Corinthians 18. Actually, my favorite passage of, of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Hold your place in 1 Corinthians and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to be reverses 1 through 6 real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 through 6. And Paul says this. It's amazing to me. Paul, um, he gets an idea in his head and he just writes about it over and over and over. And we see that this is in the beginning of another letter and he's talking about the same thing he did in 1 Corinthians 1. Let's read it and we'll talk about this for just a second. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I read this passage and I look, and I'm not even going to go into this, it's a whole other sermon, but I look at how we handle the message of God. Message of God. And it can be a, it can be a really tricky deal. It can be a really tricky sermon, especially today. How are we telling other people about Christ? Do we do it in a manner, in a form, in a way, with an attitude, however it may be, that would distort the message? That would distort the message. The message is that Jesus Christ came. He is God. He died on the cross for us. He rose on three days, three days later. And if you believe in him, you'll be saved. That's the message. And what Paul says is if we speak this message and people don't like it, They're not believing because the God of this world, because Satan has blinded their eyes. It's not because you didn't tell it right. It's not because you didn't say something nice enough or you said something um, too mean or whatever your situation might be. Paul says that there's going to be some people on this earth who don't believe because they don't believe the message. Because they don't believe Christ. Um, I will never forget. I got to go back to Hong Kong not last March, March before, and, uh, and go hang out a retreat for the weekend. And I was uh, on a plane, or actually, I was in the airport, and kind of had one of those things where we were in the line to get our tickets to, you know, ask what seat we wanted. And I kind of bumped into this guy. He bumped into me. and was like, "Oh, sorry, sorry." And you know, the you know, God was kind of like, "Ah," and like, "I'm gonna be talking to this guy in a minute." So I get on the plane, and sure enough, this guy comes and sits right next to me. You know, and I thought, "Great, I'm gonna have to witness." Um, 
So I'm just kidding. Bad joke. So we sit down and uh, he put his headphones on. I put my blanket over my head and we took a nap for about three hours. Uh, that might have been the dream of me. Um, we started talking and um, he's from Illinois or something like that. And uh, we started chatting enough. About an hour into it, we just turned into spiritual things. I didn't even try to. We just did. We started talking about um, churchy stuff. And what do you think about God? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? Are you going to go there? Cool. And we just kept talking. And so um, we got about three or four hours into our conversation. And um, he asked me um, a question. He said, do you have a girlfriend, Nathan? I was like, yeah, I do. She's beautiful. We've been dating, yada, yada, yada. And you know, we're happy and blah, blah, blah. What about you? Do you have a girlfriend? And he turned real red. Just got kind of quiet. And he said, no, but I've had a boyfriend for about a year. And I was like, all right, okay. And so uh, we just keep talking. And uh, about another hour into our conversation, um, at this point, I've shared with Chris the joy, not even the joy, the life that Christ has given me. I mean, just joy about how, I mean, I'm just telling this guy, Chris, I wake up every day and I have some good days. I have some bad days, but it doesn't matter what day it is. I've got Christ and he gives me life and he gives me joy. And I just explained that to him. I told him about, I read him some, some scripture and I just told him about my own life. And then we talked about that and we talked about homosexuality for a little bit. And then I just got to a point where I said, Chris, let me just ask you a question. Do you think in your mind that you and your boyfriend and your lifestyle and, and everything else that you have, everything else that you have, do you think that that makes you as happy as Christ has made me? And he sat there for like two minutes, quiet, really thinking. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, it does. Now, at that point, we continued to talk about football or croquet or whatever else it was. For about 30, 40 minutes. But man, I can't tell him anything more about Jesus. And I hurt. I hurt. I wanted to say something else that would make him go, Ah, I do need that. I do need that. But I shared with him the things I could share and what Christ did for him. And he said no. He said no. He said, I am fine without that. And at that point, I got nothing else to say to him about Christ. I can tell him that every single day about Christ, but I cannot change what I'm going to say to him. Well, that's what Paul says. He says, we don't distort the message. If people don't like what they're hearing, they don't like Christ. They're not accepting Christ. It's not. It's not you. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Let's read now in verse 20. And Paul says, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through... This gets confusing. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know Him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Verse 22, important here. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Now, the thing is, is we have a lot of people um, today who... Um, who are wise or who, uh, who claim to be wise. And they claim to be wise 
um, about Christ. I mean, we've got the Da Vinci Code right now. A funny thing about the Da Vinci Code is Dan Brown claims to be a Christian, um, but he wrote this novel about Jesus as fiction. Uh, have you guys done this yet? Are you going to? Okay, so y'all, you know what's going on. Uh, well, my dad um, has started talking about this uh, last Sunday morning and Sunday night. He's going to do a series on it. My dad's a pastor. And uh, we had this guy. He told the story um, about this guy named Joe Cox. He's, uh, he's in our, a member of our church. He's like a lobbyist for the legislation of forestry and fish and birds or something. I don't know. But he works in Austin like um, 12 months a year, 24 hours a day, every day. All right. He goes to some seminar in Austin um, at the Capitol. And uh, the seminar about the Da Vinci Code. And he said uh, they get about halfway to the seminar and some guy just stands up in the middle and says, yeah, well, what do you have to say about the 80 Gospels that weren't used in the Bible that, that were written about Jesus Christ? And the guy at the pulpit says, where do you get that information? He says, it's in the Da Vinci Code. Everybody knows it. And the guy was just like, that's not even true. It's fiction. It's fiction. But those wise things that are out there, they're foolish. They're so foolish. They look wise. They look so wise. Have you guys seen um, the Judas story? Have you guys heard of that? Or the, Judas, the Gospel of Judas? Excuse me, the Gospel of Judas. It's ridiculous, man. It just makes Christ out to be someone who he's not. But if you don't know the difference, it sounds really smart. Colette has been able to um, keep in contact with a girl that she met um, at a disciple now in Lufkin. And um, Lord... Kelly, um, a great girl, loves the Lord. She's been talking to some of her friends about the Lord at school. And um, she called one day and she's like, hey, Colette, what's up with this um, gospel of Judas? It um, seems pretty true. And I'm like, this girl's a Christian. She said no better, but she doesn't. One, because she's still kind of weak in the words. She's growing. But another, because some of those things out there that are not true sound really smart. They sound really intelligent. And they are intelligent. If you've seen the Da Vinci Code, I got about halfway through it. I'm thinking, man, I have no idea what's going on. Priory of Zion's killing people and doing all kinds of stuff. I don't know what's going on. Jesus is married. Ah. And they can explain it in a way that makes it sound true. Makes it sound true and people believe it. But what does God say? He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. I will frustrate. Here's a, here's a key thing to remember for us today so that we don't remain frustrated. In verse 21, read this with me. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Now, here's the deal. There are some people who believe Christ was married, had kids, and his you know, great-great-great-granddaughter is still around here somewhere. They're wrong. They're wrong. And the thing is, is they think they're right. But what Paul says is God has, through his wisdom, caused them to be foolish and not know who Christ really is and not know who God really is. But here's the thing, Doug. They don't know the difference right now. They really think that they are right. And one day, not today perhaps, they'll find out. They'll find out. When they meet God, they'll realize, well, Jesus didn't really have a wife. Man, I missed that one. He really didn't have kids. And they'll find out. But today, in their minds, they think that it's true. They're blinded because the God of this age is blinded. And can those people be saved? You better believe it. You better believe they can be saved. You better believe that they can come to know the truth. Second Corinthians chapter 4, we read that. Verse 6, Paul says, The light that God shines, He shines in our hearts and causes us to believe. No one comes except the Father draws me. That's what he says. Let's continue in verse 22. We'll be done in just a moment here. Look at this passage. Um, 
Now, let me just say, I encourage you to take this home and devour it. Are you guys doing like a study as a church, as devotions, or what are you guys, are y'all doing that? I don't know. Okay, good. So your devotion this week can be 1 Corinthians chapter 1, right? And um, I, I used to think when I was a kid that I need to find something else to read because my dad preached on John three sixteen seven weeks in a row, so I've got to read something else. But I would go home and do start doing devotions on things I've already heard and read them over and over and over again. And, man, I, I learned things that you couldn't have taught me, man, that I learned by myself. And, uh, and, and these things, I've been reading this several times, and there's actually about six sermons worth of stuff here, man. You could go all day. Verse 22. That, um, let's just go. Verse 22. G, um, the Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness. To the Gentiles, the Jews demand miraculous signs. They demand miraculous signs. Turn to John chapter 6 with me. The last passage that we'll look at outside of 1 Corinthians. John chapter 6. And we'll read kind of lengthy passage because we need to see what's going on here. John 6. Starting in verse 10. Starting in verse 8. And as you use your imaginations this morning, think, just think about what's going on here. Because if it hits you... It will make you laugh. I, I could not believe it when I saw this the first time when I read it in this last, last semester in class. Verse 8. Another of his disciples, you'll catch on with the story is real quick. Another of his disciples, Andrew Simon, Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Five thousand to be exact. Jesus said, have the, have the people sit down. And there was plenty of grass in the place and the men sat down, about five thousand of them. And Jesus then took the loaves and gave thanks. He distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them, filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves, left over with those who had been eaten. And after Jesus saw the miraculous sign, and after the people saw the miraculous sign, okay, listen to this, verse 14, after people saw the miraculous sign, 1 Corinthians 1, 22, Jews demanded a miraculous sign, you catching on? They begin to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. So they're starting to catch on. Jesus, knowing that they had intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. All right. Verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for, for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough and when they had Rode three or three and a half miles. They saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And then they were willing to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there. And that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples. But they had gone away alone. And then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread. People had been fed the 5,000 after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and they went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. So they saw Jesus feed 5,000 people. His disciples get on the boat. They go across the lake three and a half miles. Jesus doesn't go with them. But then they realize the disciples have landed on the other side. Where is Jesus? Verse 26, um, 25, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? How'd you get here? Just swim or walk. We don't know. Verse 26, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You're looking for me, not because you saw 
miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Do not, um, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then, verse 28, they ask him, what must we do to see the works, to do the works that God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Now listen, here is the key. The same group of people that were fed, 5,000, the 5,000 that were fed, they ask him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see and believe you are who you are? Now at this point, if I'm Jesus, I mean, I'm cussing in holy words, right? I'm thinking, guys, there's 5,000 of you. I just fed you with fish and loaves, like a few of them, because you didn't know I walked on water last night. What more do you want me to do? What more do you want me to do? The Jews were constantly demanding Jesus to do more magic. They didn't even want miraculous signs. They wanted him to do something spectacular so that if he did something big enough and huge enough, then they would go, Oh, yeah, he really is the Savior. He really is Jesus. He really is the Son of God. They wanted more no matter what he did. But here is the thing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, Jews demand miraculous signs, but to them it is a stumbling block. The cross for them is a stumbling block. You know why? Because it is the ultimate sign of who Christ is. Yet they still want more. They still want more. And I find myself in this place. And you tell me if you don't, have you never experienced this? Tell me. I received Christ as my Savior when I was seven years old. I, I can tell you today exactly what happened. And He is my life. He's my joy and my salvation. But there have been days, and I bet there's going to be some days in the future, where I say stupid stuff like, God, if you're real, you'll get that car out of the way so I can go through this intersection. You know? Well, God, if you're really there, then man, just tell me where I'm supposed to go to seminary so I have to figure it out. God, if you're real, then give me a sign. Show me that you're really there and that you're working, that you're doing stuff. Give me something to show me that you're God. And what Paul says is that's a stumbling block on your way to the cross. Because when you get to the cross and you see it and you know what God did there through Jesus, you will realize that is the sign. That is the greatest sign that Christ could give us. That He died and rose again for us. Because He is God. If we, as a church, as an individual, as a married couple, as, as friends, as whatever, if we need to follow something other than the cross in order that we have a greater faith in Christ, whether we have a greater faith in God, we really miss the cross. We really miss the cross because it's enough. Because it's enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just uh, ask that you be with us today as we soak up your word for the rest of the day. Father, I pray that um, um, this passage, Father, is not just uh, uh, spoken of and then gone, but God, you continue to impound it into our hearts um, about what Christ is and uh, Father, we don't need to follow another person. Uh, we don't need to follow um, another plan, a, another doctrine, or whatever. God, we, we're fine in the cross. And uh, we, your grace is enough. And uh, we sang that today, God. But let that be true in us. Let us be about that. Let us be about the cross and about nothing else and no one else.
Um, Father, convict us when we seek other things to remind us of you and not just be trusting that you showed us yourself and your son. Uh, Father, uh, we thank you that you did send your son. Uh, that he He's the greatest picture of you, God. I teach that to us, God. Continue to uh, develop that in us and, and show us that, Father. We love you, God. And we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. You should have received the uh, registration card.